This week, we're talking about the Old Testament, and we're starting this new series um, about leadership. And I don't really have a nice, fancy title for you, but I've noticed in the Old Testament, we get these stories about leaders who are put in positions um, where they really have this interesting choice to make, where God kind of puts them in a place where they have to respond to God in a way that's almost contrary to God. It's very interesting. So the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about uh, Moses and Abraham and Jonah and the way that these three leaders kind of respond to an interesting and important quandary that God puts in their path. And so today we're talking about Exodus 32 uh, verses 9 through 14. And this is a story about Moses. And more specifically, this is a story about the golden calf. And now I know the golden calf is a story that if you've been in church, you kind of know about. And it's often talked about as this, you know, failure of Israel, of Israel has just gotten out of Egypt. Uh, Israel was in Egypt in slavery for about 400 years. And Moses has just led the people out of Egypt through God's work. Um, And they've crossed the Red Sea and they're in the wilderness. And they're kind of wandering through the wilderness and they've arrived at Mount Sinai. And, And when you're reading the text, you feel like they just got liberated from slavery by God. And they saw all these plagues and like all these works of God. And then you get to Sinai and because they don't see Moses or they don't hear God for like a couple days, it feels like then they lose their minds and are like, well, let's worship a golden calf. Like that's cool. Um, And so it seems very weird to have this group of people who have seen God very presently at work to just kind of freak out and peace out when it comes to worshiping God and build themselves a golden calf. And so today we're talking about Moses and God's reaction to this. Um, Now, I will be honest, there are a couple different reactions if you go back and read the text. There are like three different ways that God and Moses respond. So um, we're just going to focus on one of those today because I think this one is really interesting about what it says about who God is and about who we are called to be as people of God and potentially as leaders in the church or leaders in your faith community. And so hear these words from the book of Exodus. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen these people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And of you, and this is Moses that God is speaking to, of you I will make a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that God brought them out of slavery to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? God, turn your fierce wrath, change your mind, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I, God, will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And so the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he had planned to bring on his people. So like we said, Exodus 32, 9 through 14 recounts just one of the reactions of God to the people of Israel after they build and worship this golden calf. In this section of text, 
I think God puts a test before Moses to see if Moses will intercede on behalf of Israel and if Moses will remain a humble servant. This text reveals the righteousness of Moses, the nature of a relational God, and it sets forth an example for future faith leaders. As is true with pretty much every sermon I do, uh, I think we must begin with understanding the background of our text. See, the book of Exodus doesn't set out to reconstruct Israel's early history, but rather to tell a story of a people in relationship with God and God's engagement in their lives. The concern for what quote-unquote really happened is honestly inconsequential. One of the things we talk about when we study the Old Testament in seminary is that we start by reading the text, by not asking the question, is this what actually happened? That's not the question we're going to ask today. The question we're going to ask is, why are you telling me this story now? So keep this in mind. Why are we being told this story? If we start our exploration by asking why instead of what, it's important to note that Exodus does not belong to the genre of historical narrative, for its primary concerns are issues of theology, not what actually happened. Therefore, it's not really important, nor is it the purpose of the text to recount historical facts. Because let's be upfront, y'all, there wasn't someone sitting off to the side who was writing down word for word what was happening both on Sinai between God and Moses and simultaneously what was happening with Israel and the golden calf. So we can assume that those who wrote the book of Exodus were potentially faithful people writing after the time of all these events who were trying to speak a word of God to a faithful community. Dating the authorship of Exodus is a cumbersome undertaking due to the various source material, which is a whole lot of fancy stuff that we don't have to get into today. Um, however, it is possible that this story was written not in response to an event taking place after the exodus of Israel, but to an event that happened much later in its history. So buckle up, here's a brief Israel history lesson. Jeroboam is the first king of northern Israel after the split of the northern and southern kingdoms around 930 BCE, and this king sought to reorient Israel's focus of worship away from Jerusalem, which was in the southern kingdom of Judah. In 1 Kings 12, 25-33, Jeroboam, in fact, erects two golden calves, placing one in Bethel and one in Dan, saying, Here are your gods, O Israel, who have brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So it's highly possible that the writer of Exodus may have written this whole chapter of Exodus 32 as a direct reference not to the golden calf built after Sinai, but as a direct reference to Jeroboam's cult politics and as a condemnation of his actions of building golden calves as worship outside of Jerusalem. So if we're going to set the literary stage, and we're going to talk about the history surrounding where this chapter was written, it's also important to recognize what culture looks like during this time. And so in the ancient Near East, you know, various gods and goddesses were represented as bulls, cows, or calves. In Canaan, the bull deity was the head of the pantheon. In Mesopotamia, the warrior god of Babylon was Marduk, which means bull calf of the sun in Samaria. 
Gilgamesh's divine mother was Ninsun, the wild cow. In Egypt, the goddess Hathor was a cow or cow woman. Ancient Near Eastern art depicts deity sitting and standing on assorted animals, which includes bulls and cows. Therefore, considering the culture surrounding these people during this time, it's highly possible that the golden calves of Jeroboam are simply a visible pedestal for God, who is imagined standing invisibly on them. And so in the Exodus version of the golden calf, Moses, as the visible mediator of God, is now also invisible to the people, having ascended to Sinai to converse with God. And so the people now desire a visible God to lead the way. With this in mind, there are three possibilities behind the intention of the golden calves in the Bible. The calves of Aaron, which is what we're talking about with the calf in Exodus, and the calf that Jeroboam creates in 1 Kings, it's possible that they might represent a deity other than God. But it's also possible that each calf represents God, God's self. Or it's even possible that Aaron and Jeroboam are not creating calves to say this calf is God, but rather to point to the empty space above the calf saying God is in this space. And so the second view that we talk about that the calf was actually representative of God, well, it leads us to an interesting quandary. For after the creation of the golden calf in Exodus, Aaron even says tomorrow is a festival for God. See, each of these golden calves are claimed to be the gods who took Israel up out of the land of Egypt. For Aaron says, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Jeroboam in 1 Kings says, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Both Aaron and Jeroboam claim their golden calves to represent the God of Israel the same God who delivered Israel from Egypt. And so with this in mind, it's entirely possible that the people may not have all departed from worshiping God, as we've traditionally been told. But rather, maybe they just simply have disobeyed the rules for proper worship. The story of the golden calf in chapter 32, it needs to be examined within the surrounding literary context. With the theme of broken covenant dominating chapter 32, and then we see the renewal of the covenant in chapter 34. And so these two chapters function as almost a reflection of God's entire relationship with the nation of Israel. This cycle of broken covenant, punishment, redemption, and restoration, this continues throughout the entire Old Testament. But specifically, the text we're focusing on today, Exodus chapter 32, verses 9 through 14, it centers around Moses and his appeal to God on behalf of the people of Israel. So there are actually at least three different narratives about God's reaction to the golden calf in chapter 32. This is just one of them. Um, and this reaction sets up the tension of the entire narrative sequence of Exodus 32 and 34. This act of disobedience sets into motion this sequence of punishment, mercy, covenant renewal, and reconciliation. It shows the pattern of the relationship between God and Israel that it has inhabited since the beginning. But it's also a statement on the nature of God, that God is responsive to human entreaty. So into the nitty-gritty we go. In verses 9 and 10, God reacts to the defection of Israel 
by telling Moses to let God alone so that God's wrath may burn hot against Israel and they will be consumed by it. In solution to the consumption of Israel, God says that God will make a great nation of Moses, echoing the covenant made with Abraham in Genesis 12, which if you don't know what that means, in Genesis 12, God makes a covenant with Abraham, where God says that out of Abraham, he will be made into a great nation, that his descendants will be more than the stars in the sky, and that these people, these Israel people, they are the descendants of Abraham, with which God has made a covenant. And so in these couple of verses, God basically is ready to back out of that covenant and start over and make a new covenant with Moses that echoes the same one that God made first with the people of Israel through the lineage of Abraham. And these first two verses set up the following text as it reveals to the reader insight about the nature of God and it sets up a test for Moses. In God's declaration of the wrath that Israel has brought upon themselves, God tells Moses to leave God alone so that God can exact this punishment. This phrase, let me alone, said by God, I think warrants consideration. As it presents the notion that while God has set out to unleash God's wrath on the Israelites, God's mind isn't actually set on the matter. Conceivably, Moses could contribute to this decision. This phrase is also interesting in relation to the power dynamic between the human and the divine. Moses honestly has no real power over God. Moses cannot physically stop God from punishing Israel. So why in the world would God need Moses to leave in order to accomplish this task? I think maybe it's not an issue of God thinking Moses could stop the wrath, but rather God is giving Moses an opportunity to stop it. By saying, leave me alone, God is offering Moses a chance to intercede on behalf of the people. God invites Moses to act as an intercessor. This statement, while it invites Moses to object to God's action, is also a statement on the nature of God. For it supposes that God is responsive to human entreaty. That is, it is in God's nature to listen and to respond to human action in the world. These first two verses contain two tests for Moses. The first is to see if Moses is merciful and will act as a go-between on behalf of the people of Israel. The second is to test Moses' servant nature. For God doesn't simply invite Moses to stand in the way of God's wrath, but God also adds an additional perk for Moses. If Moses were to stand aside and let God bring down God's wrath on Israel, then Moses would become the new Abraham. God offers to make Moses' lineage into a great nation. This is honestly an appealing offer. It elevates Moses from the servant of Israel, the one who represents a God they cannot see, to the patriarch of God's chosen nation. And up until this point in the narrative, Moses has honestly dealt firsthand with the fickle people of Israel who complain with superior dramatics at every inconvenience. So, I mean, I imagine it would be really tempting for Moses to take God's offer, to be rid of the thankless job as the servant leader of a temperamental people and instead be elevated to the status of the patriarchs in Genesis. But as we move into verse 11, we see that Moses doesn't take the bait. 
Instead of stepping aside to let divine wrath rain down the people and become the next great patriarch, Moses decides to intercede on behalf of the people, giving up God's offer to become a great nation. Instead, Moses appeals to God saying, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? The question of this kind of possession of the people is a theme throughout Exodus. When Israel is faced with opposition in their journey out of Egypt into the wilderness, they often blame Moses for the trouble, asking why did Moses bring them out of slavery just to die in the desert? And even God, God's self, tries to replace the responsibility of Israel onto Moses. Just two verses before this conversation, God tells Moses to go down at once. Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. But in verse 11, Moses takes this very same wording and puts the responsibility of the liberation of the people of Israel from Egypt back on God. Moses reminds God of what God did, that God led the people out of Egypt with a great power and a mighty hand. God was the one who did mighty acts of wonder against Pharaoh, not Moses. Moses appeals to God's power and might, clearly stating through this appeal that God is the God of Israel, not Moses. In this way, Moses demonstrates that he knows he is not God and thus shouldn't try to act as such. Moses continues his intercession on behalf of the people by conjuring up an imagined Egyptian slander against God. He asks God to imagine what the Egyptians that God literally just conquered would say in response to the destruction of Israel. Egypt, up close and personally, has seen the wrath of God. They've seen what God is capable of in response to injustice. And according to Moses, by killing all the people that God just liberated, God essentially negates the entirety of that work leaving Egypt to believe that the God of the Hebrews took them out of slavery, liberated from bondage, just to kill them. In this verse, Moses makes it clear that God's reputation is on the line. And God needs to turn from wrath in order to save it. And so Moses wraps up this speech by reminding God of the covenant made with the patriarchs Abraham Isaac, and Jacob, saying, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, which is Jacob, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I, God, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised, I will give your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. Covenants are not to be taken lightly, y'all. God entered into a covenant with Abraham that now applies to all of Abraham's descendants, which is all the people of Israel, the very people whom God wants to destroy. As stated previously, Moses doesn't take up God's offer to become a new covenant, to be the next Abraham, to be the next lineage from which God will make a great nation. So therefore, God is bound by the covenant with Abraham. God is compelled to uphold it. Moses appeals to God's relationship with humanity that in spite of all its flaws and shortcomings, 
God continues to choose to be in covenant with God's people. It's in God's very nature to be relational. And so here's the deal. All these things that Moses just laid out to convince God to not destroy Israel, God knows all these things. Moses really didn't have to convince God to not destroy Israel. God is well aware of the importance of upholding the covenant, of the fact that God indeed chose these people. God knows this. And so I think the whole point of this conversation between God and Moses is that really, God wants to see if Moses knows these things as well. And see, Exodus 32, 9 through 14 marks a pivotal change in God's relationship with humanity. With Noah, there's this restart of a quote-unquote new Adam, where God destroys all the people and starts over a new covenant with Noah and Noah's lineage. And then Abraham, again, is chosen over all other people to become a great nation. And God makes that covenant again with Abraham and chooses Abraham. And then Isaac is chosen to continue the covenant and Ishmael is rejected. And then Jacob is chosen to continue this covenant and his brother Esau is rejected. And so it begs the question as to why God would not also operate the same way with Moses. God offers to make Moses a great nation, and although Moses appeals to God to have mercy, God really is under no obligation to save Israel. In fact, it would be within the pattern of the books of the Bible so far, Genesis and Exodus, for God to save the righteous, quote-unquote, people and reject those who messed up. It would be within the pattern of God so far to wipe out the wicked and start over with the line of Moses, which echoes the covenant made with Noah. In fact, it seems that that is what Moses honestly expects God to do. As Moses seeks to change God's mind, it would make logical sense for Israel to be destroyed in this moment. Yet this isn't what happens. Instead, God listens to Moses fight for humanity, which not only displays Moses's righteousness, but also reveals that God is willing to offer humanity the chance to repent for their sins. This section of text shows the importance of righteousness in relationship with God, as opposed to blind obedience. See, Moses had opportunity to simply obey God, to allow God to destroy Israel, and then reap the reward of becoming a great nation, of honestly getting a better job than he has right now. But Moses sees the people and sees their worthiness, sees that they're worthy of the chance of redemption and appeals to God on their behalf. Moses presents his case reminding God of all that God has done for the people and that God chose to be in relationship with them and so destroying them would be contrary to the very nature of God. Through this test, Moses shows God that he is willing to be a servant to both the people of Israel and to God. And so I think this story has something important to say to church leaders, that it reminds us to discern God's will on a constant basis, to be willing to reject blind obedience in favor of deep thought and deep criticism and wondering, is this God or do I need to check myself? And I think it also reminds us that we need to be willing to serve without regard for our own glory or elevation. 
See, Moses' place in the story is not to become the next great patriarch of a great nation, but rather to be the thankless servant of a nation who intercedes before God on their behalf. And I think the same is true for both those who are called to lead the church and all of us. For us, we're not called to be in a place of power and prominence, but rather we are called to be willing to serve the people and to tell them about the great love of God. The Virtual Pulpit is self-funded, so if you'd like to help support this podcast, you can visit the Patreon page at the Virtual Pulpit. If you have any comments, theological questions, or topics that you'd like to hear on the show, visit the website at thevirtualpulpit.com and head on over to the contact page. Thanks for listening.